<clears throat> well, we've had several people running around with all kinds of stuff. Hopefully you got what you needed and you're good to go. If not, I apologize, <laughs> but uh, uh, hopefully in the weeks ahead we'll have it nice and ironed out and smoothed out. We're just starting lots of uh, new and interesting things here tonight. Now, I probably won't be as uh, moving around uh, here tonight. If you're used to, uh, you know me, I'm usually running around and I make all the camera people upset up there because they can't ever track me properly because I'm all over the place and don't ever stay up here much. <clears throat> I've had a tickle in my throat the last two days, terrible. And uh, it, it just dry cough that just won't go away. And uh, some of y'all, oh, see, there's other people that have the same thing. So, uh, you know, uh, it's just one of those things. If I get going, I'll get going and it won't be pretty. And so uh, anyways, <clears throat> First John, uh, let's start uh, in our series here this evening in the book of First John and chapter number one. If you're unfamiliar with uh, where First John is, just go to the end of the book the book of the Revelation, and then back it up a few books and you'll hit it. It's right there. Uh, just a few books before Revelation. Huh? Yes, right before Second John, which is right before Third John. It's right before Jude, which is right before Revelation. <clears throat> so there you go, which is right before the final book of the Bible, the Concordance. Okay? No, I'm just kidding. And so, uh, <clears throat> anyways, hope you find your place there in First John. We're going to be in this book for a, a good while. Uh, digging into it, and I believe it'll be a help and a blessing. That really is my heart. Uh, this study was born less out of a pastor trying to prep messages to preach and was more so born out of an uh, individual who was struggling, who studied the scriptures to find truth, um, because I'd heard a lot of mistruth and misspeaking, and so I want to be a blessing. I really do. That's my genuine heart in this. Uh, the Lord has shown me a lot of grace in this area, and uh, I, I want to extend that grace to you. So we'll read the text. I'll share a little bit of my testimony, and then we'll, we'll kind of jump into this uh, here. So found your place. If you're able to, stand together with me, and we go to 1 John chapter 1, and we're going to start reading in verse number 1. <clears throat> 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. Just to fill in the blanks there, the word of life, that's Jesus. And if anyone could say, I've seen him, I've felt him, I've heard him, it was John, the beloved who leaned on his bosom there at that last supper. Oh yeah, absolutely. Verse number two, he gives in a parenthesis here. He says, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be so I've titled the message here tonight, kind of taken there from verse number four, Joyful in Christ. May God bless the reader's word. You can be seated. Thank you for standing uh, in honor of the scriptures here tonight. Let's <clears throat> just share uh, just a little bit of my testimony because the longer I'm in ministry and the longer I talk to people, the more I realize uh, my testimony aligns with more people than it doesn't. I wish I had some testimonies like some folks who got saved later in life. I've talked to Brother Gary some about it. He got saved uh, when he was, what, 19? 
Yeah, 19 years old. And uh, Brother Dick Webster's another one, uh, y'all's former pastor's brother. Uh, I've heard his testimony many times. And uh, for them, they just say, I got saved and I've never once doubted it. They've never once had a day of doubt. It's just been rock solid in their mind. There's never been a second guessing. But the more I, I talk to people, the more I realize this, that is abnormal. <laughs> uh, most of us have had moments and times in our life where we do this. We've doubted our salvation, whether it was because we were in sin or whether it was because some well-meaning preacher said something a saved person wouldn't or a saved person would. Or if you didn't experience this, you didn't really get saved. And I've heard very well-meaning preachers say that. And I can remember uh, as a five-year-old boy accepting Christ as my Savior. And then, especially when I was 12, really doubting that and dealing with my dad and getting re-saved. And then throughout even Bible college, getting re-saved. And I can honestly tell you, I got saved when I was five. Those re-saved moments of a just-in-case were times where there was doubt in my heart. And those moments where you cry out to the Lord... What really became assurance in my soul and my heart was starting to realize this. It has very little to do with what I did and so much more to do with who he is. And so I started realizing my assurance and my salvation is not dependent on what I said at an altar. It's dependent on the person of Christ. And so is my salvation based on did I say the right words or is it based on what Jesus did on the cross? And that was a very... Uh, a comforting thought to me uh, as I've grown in the Lord and as I've studied 1 John, uh, which I said was really born out of. I'll tell you, 1 John came about as a pastor. We had an evangelist come to our church. And uh, again, well-meaning. I'm not trying to uh, demonize any of these pastors that have done this. Uh, but uh, a sermon was preached about salvation and uh, was trying to draw people in order to be saved. <clears throat> and it did a lot in our church, I feel like, personally, because I know what was going on in my soul as the pastor, uh, to cause people to doubt their salvation who were genuinely saved. And so it went almost to the extent of, if you don't remember this, 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 and you don't have this, 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 then you're not truly saved. And the list of things that were there were just overwhelming. And so I, I can just recall that and remember the feelings in my heart. And so I went to the scriptures. What a great place to go, right? Amen. Yeah, I mean, I went to the scriptures. Does the Bible really say, if you don't remember who was preaching that night, can you really be saved? Does the Bible really say, if you didn't say these exact words, you're not really saved? Does the Bible really say, if you don't, uh, uh, if someone didn't show you the Bible itself and the scripture, they just shared their testimony and how you could be saved? Is that really... And so I went to the Bible. What a great place to go. And started to look, well, what does the Scripture say? And went to 1 John, because 1 John is a self-proclaimed book that deals with this idea of that you may know. That's yep. how you know that you're saved. And I started to realize the evidence of salvation uh, were much less to do with those things. And John talks about love for God. Hatred for sin, love for the brethren. And he says, these are major markers of a regenerate life. And I started to look at my life, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I started to say this, there is resounding evidence of regenerating work within my heart. And it was such a peaceful thing to realize that the evidence of Scripture uh, once again showed that reality. Now, we're not talking about working our way to heaven, right? We're going to make that very clear. But 1 John gives signs or fruit 
Things that are there, markers that say this. Are these a part of your life? Your doubt and salvation? Well, these things are there to help you identify. Hey, I belong to Christ. I'm His, okay? It's not those things that make you saved. It's those things that identify you do belong to Christ. Or maybe if they're not there, a reevaluation needs to take place that I really put my faith and trust in Christ. So that's really the intent of where this was born out of. Now, uh, sometimes what we're looking for uh, is right in front of us. I hate to admit that I have done this, but have you ever pulled out your phone and turned on the flashlight on your phone and started looking for your phone? Anybody ever done that before? Okay. I, I, I hate to admit that I've done that, but I have, and... I'm sitting there looking, and I'm like, Evie, have you seen my phone? And she just looks at me like, you got to be joking right now. There's no way that you're serious. And so it's one of those things where what you're looking for is actually way easier to find than what you thought it was. Now, that is absolutely true of joy in Christ. It's amazing to me how many people go and they look for joy and happiness and fulfillment in a lot of weird places and it's almost like they pick up their phone, looking for their phone, and right in front of their face is what they're looking for. As a believer, it ought to be very evident, and just right in front of your face, that Jesus equals joy. If you want joy in your life, you look no further than Jesus Christ. But it amazes me how many people are like, no, that's too simple, I need to dig deeper, and I need to go find it somewhere else. Now, John deals with that very fact that there were people who were digging and looking in all these wrong places in different places for joy when he says, it's right in front of you. We, we delivered the gospel to you. We shared the gospel with you. It hasn't changed. Just believe the gospel that was given to you. And it's a wonderful truth for us to remember, even here tonight, is that joy is found in Jesus Instead of trying to work to please God, just enjoy the relationship with Jesus. Amen. He wants you just to relish the relationship. And so let's take a look here as we begin the book and kind of get some uh, insight uh, to where John is coming from. So the first point there, false doctrine are groups that John was concerned with. Now, at this point, John is a, an old man. This is soon to be, he's going to write this book, and then he's going to write the Revelation. He'll be exiled to the Isle of Patmos, where he'll write the book of the Revelation. But right now, he's concerned, uh, uh, old man, and he's living in Ephesus, in modern-day Turkey, which has become this uh, super highway, if you will, of all of these uh, travelers, but not only of cultures and ethnicities, but also of thought and religion. So Ephesus has become a bridge from the east to the west and has become this epicenter of all these ideas and, unfortunately, a lot of bad ideas were passing through there as well. So this is near the end of the first century, John now being an old man, and there's starting to be some false teaching called syncretism. Now, this has got a different name today. Uh, you might call it ecumenalism today or some other word. But syncretism at the time basically means this. Let's all just get along and we'll just take everybody's beliefs and we'll just like throw them all in a big pot 
and mix it all together like a yummy stew. That is a terrible idea. But there are those who still kind of think that way today. They're just like, hey, we'll just take what, you know, the Catholics believe in the Methodists and the Baptists and the Pentecostals and the Bible churches and all these other groups if they claim to be Christian. And we'll just throw it all in a big pot and mix it together and it's just all good and wonderful and yummy. And that is not a, uh, a good idea. It wasn't a good idea there. So this went beyond tolerance to implementing and even absorbing wrong beliefs. Now, there is one thing to say, hey, let's find where we agree and that there's more things we agree on than we disagree. But that's not what John was concerned about. He was concerned with them absorbing all of these bad ideas and going beyond tolerance to start implementing these. In the book of the Revelation, in chapter 3, John actually writes about seven of these churches in Asia Minor. One of them is the church of Ephesus. And all seven of these churches, there's only two of them that are spoken about positive. The other five are spoken about like just absolutely abysmal. They were awful and terrible, which just shows how much has crept into the churches of this day of false belief and wrong behavior. Now, <laughs> obviously with this thought in mind, it appears that there were those who had left the church to pursue these false beliefs and were not where they ought to be. Actually, later in this very book of 1 John, in chapter 2 and verse number 19, he would say it this way. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they have been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now, again, John is trying to draw a distinction between those who believe correctly, saved, and those who are unsaved and have believed false doctrine. Now, in 1 John 2, he's saying this, there are those who are, have left the faith, and he's saying this, it's an evident that they never were a part of the faith because they've left it. If they were a part of the faith, they'd still be here, but they've left it. And so he's talking about, I don't know a specific group, but there obviously was this syncretism going on where there were all these groups that were melding together and it was causing all kinds of disbelief and all kinds of wrong doctrine that was taking place. Now, probably the most prominent of all of these groups that was a part of this just melding pot that was starting to be born. Now, this group wouldn't really become strong until about 100 years later or so after this. But they are early stages beginning, and they are known as the Gnostics. Now, the Gnostics are a, a weird group of people. So instead of trying to really define exactly what a Gnostic is, let me just give you a basic understanding of what they believe, okay? Kind of a, about four major tenets here. The first one is this. The body is evil, <clears throat> or anything in this material world. So if it's something that's physical in this world flesh, uh, earth, the things we can tangibly experience, those things are all evil, they're all bad, they're all fallen, they're all broken. The second thing that they have in their wrong thought process was this, the spirit is good. And enlightenment and deep thinking is a really good goal to shoot for. So it's kind of this, <coughs> my body's evil, but my spirit is good. They separated the two. So that's kind of the third point of this. The body and soul are disconnected. 
Thus, anything done in the body doesn't affect your soul. Now, this wrong belief system kind of led him to start saying things like this. Well, if the flesh is bad, then Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Instead, they would say this, the spirit is good. So you remember at the baptism, when John's baptizing Jesus and you hear this voice, this is my beloved son, whom well pleased. You know, and there's this angel descending from heaven like a dove. They're saying this, Jesus was just a normal man. He wasn't no virgin birth or any weird stuff. He's just a normal man. And at that time, God's spirit came on Jesus and he was just possessed by God for a period of time until he was crucified. Now, just get a little ahead of myself right here on this. Say this: That's heresy. That, that, if you believe that, you cannot be saved and believe that. You must believe that Christ came in the flesh. So Gnostics, though, believe that the body was evil, so Christ couldn't have come in the body. And the spirit is good, so the, Jesus was just the spirit that possessed a human body. The body and the soul are disconnected, which is this. If you want to sin in your body... Go ahead. You can do all the sin you want to in your body because it doesn't affect your spirit. That's a wrong belief as well. Now, the fourth tenet they had was this. Since their goal was enlightenment and deep thinking, they became arrogant, prideful, and loveless. Very, very much so. So much so that they didn't care about other people, and they definitely look out for the well-being of the needs or wants of other people. That was not where they were. Every man looked out for himself. So John actually identifies three major tests to reveal if a doctrine or belief system or theology is true and right. So here's what they have to believe. Now again, this is found throughout the book of 1 John. We're just kind of getting laying the groundwork. Don't lose me here, okay? Here's the groundwork. Here's the three things. So if you ever want to test, is, is what this guy preaches, is, is, is with the doctrine, the way he's saying of salvation is true... There are three tests that you can run through it to see if it's an accurate doctrine or not. Now, there's a lot more, but these are the ones that John gives us. First one is this, Christ is come in the flesh. If anybody preaches that Jesus didn't come physically, bodily, in the flesh, it's heresy. It's not of God. It's not the gospel. Second thing is this, preach holy living, which is this, sin is wrong. Now, again, <clears throat> uh, John is not talking about perfection. None of us are going to be perfect. But unfortunately, this group, as we've already talked about, was basically saying this, do whatever you want to. Sin however you want to, because whatever you do in the body doesn't affect the spirit. So do whatever you want to do. And so John says, no, 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 that doesn't jive with the scriptures. The scriptures make it clear that you are holy and set apart. You are peculiar people set apart for good works. So sin is wrong and it grieves the heart of God and it ought to grieve the heart of a believer. The third thing was this, love for the brethren. Any gospel that teaches you to look out for number one and ignore everyone else is not from God. Because the scriptures help us learn to die to self and live unto God and love others. I mean, is replete throughout the scriptures. So John makes it clear a regenerate heart, somebody who gets saved, instinctively loves the things that God loves, and God loves His church, which means this, you'll love His church. And I'm not talking about the institution or the building, I'm talking about the people, right? You'll, you'll love the people. And so these are three major tests that reveal that a belief system is right. 
Now, the bad part was not that these people had left the church, as we talked about in 1 John chapter 2, and pursued false doctrine. Here's the bad part. They were trying to infiltrate the church and peddle off their bad beliefs in this syncretism of everybody just getting together. Now, this is one of the jobs of, a, of an under-shepherd that uh, I'm, I'm, sometimes it gets rather weary, is that there is a world of bad belief that's out there that tries to find its way into Bible Baptist Church, and as important as it is to feed the sheep, it's also important to ward off the wolves. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> and to, from the pulpit, and also in other settings, to be able to make it aware, hey, that's bad doctrine. Hey, that's dangerous. Don't listen to that. Don't read that guy. Don't listen to that stuff. It'll lead you down the wrong path. And so uh, understand John here, of course, is as much concerned with them uh, understanding the truth as much as he is with them identifying what they ought to stay away from. So he's, he's helping them uh, see the bad part and the good and leading church members in the right way that they ought to go. Now, you'll see throughout 1 John, uh, John's an old man, so he gets away with this. I'm not going to use this language towards you for another probably 20 or 30 years, okay? But John calls them little children. So in his writing, he's almost like a grandfather, and he says, little children, watch out for this, right? He's imparting wisdom and giving it to them. And so, almost like somebody who's teaching an individual how to look out for counterfeit money, John says, let me show you what's real so you know what's wrong. And so, instead of focusing on that bad group, he says, let me focus on what the Bible actually says of what true salvation is and how you can know that you're saved and experience the joy of Jesus in that salvation. So that way, when something comes along that doesn't pass the sniff test, it isn't the same. You can say this, that's not good. I'm going to pass on that. It doesn't pass the litmus test here. And so as a grandfather writing to little children, he often uses the words little children and beloved. So <clears throat> this next point here, that which was from the beginning. We'll start getting into the verses here where he says this, that which was from the beginning in verse number one. Now, I don't have to tell you, you're Wednesday night crowd, but there were a, a group of men handpicked by Jesus Christ uh, called the disciples. <coughs> These men had an awesome opportunity to hear and see things that none of us will ever get to hear or see or experience. The earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Could you imagine experiencing the things the apostles, the disciples got to see? Just unimaginable. Oh, it'd be so awesome. And how many times they made such bad decisions. <laughs> Just blows my mind. And then I'm assured in the New Testament, I have a better thing than they had because I have the Bible. And then I think about all the boneheaded things that I do. But you think about the disciples, they're writing here. John's telling these, these other believers, you didn't hear Jesus live and in person. You didn't get to see him. You didn't get to lay hands on him after he was resurrected and feel his nail-pierced hands and put your hand in his side. But John says this, I did. He says, from the beginning, the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he says, I was part of that inner circle. 
Peter, James, John, he says, I got to see a lot of really cool stuff. I heard it. I saw it. I experienced it. I felt it with my hands. I saw it with my own eyes. This is not a third-hand experience. I saw it firsthand. I experienced it firsthand. I saw him die. And I saw him resurrect. I experienced his resurrection body. I heard the Sermon on the Mount. I was there with him at the Last Supper. I watched him raise people from the dead. I watched him take a Happy Meal and feed 5,000 people. I mean, John's here literally saying this. Listen, I know you weren't there, but understand this. I was. And God has given me this great opportunity that I experienced and I saw and I felt and I heard all of these wonderful things. And know this, the Word was manifest. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, so I'll just kind of dive into this. Okay, in, in John's Gospel... Remember John chapter 1, verse number 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Okay, everybody knows 1 John 1, 1, pretty standard verse, an important thing to recognize on this. Now, John says there in verse number 2, for the life was manifest. So he says there in verse number 1, he says, my hands my eyes, my ears, every bot, every part of my being experienced the word of life, Jesus. I, I, heard, I heard him, I saw him. And he says there in verse number two, he says, for the life was manifest. <clears throat> What's he talking about? Well, life is the same as the word, which is the same as Jesus. They're all synonyms. I love reading commentaries where all these people who are deep thinkers and their mind goes, because they can't just take the simple truth that's just right in front of them. They're like, we don't know here if Jesus is talking, or John's talking about Jesus or the gospel. I sit back and I'm like, you do realize they're one and the same, right? Jesus is the gospel, and the gospel is Jesus. John doesn't have to be uh, uh, talking about one exclusively, actually he makes it pretty abundantly clear he's talking about one and the same, but all of them included because they're all the same thing. He says here, the word, Jesus, life, salvation, the gospel, it was made manifest. They're all one and the same. The gospel is life and life is Jesus, and Jesus is the gospel. And so John is saying here, I experienced, I saw, I felt, I heard every aspect of who Jesus was, and know this, he was manifest. Well, what does the word manifest mean? Well, we read it there in 1 John, or John 1, 1, which means this, it was real. It was apparent, actual, right there in front of you. It wasn't like a figurative thing or some spiritual thing. Jesus became flesh. 1 John chapter 4, again, just kind of getting an overview of the book here a little bit. But 1 John 4 verses 2 and 3 says this, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. <clears throat> Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereby ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. We say, well, what is that? Here's John, he's saying this. If somebody says Jesus didn't come in the flesh, don't believe it. That's not a message from God. If they say Jesus was born in the flesh, you can say this, 
That message is true. Now, everything else they're saying might not be true, but that is that Jesus it was born in the flesh. God became man, 100%, and yet still was God 100%. We just came through the Christmas time, and that manifestation of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, will always baffle my mind, and every one of us as believers. We'll never fully understand how he could be fully God and fully man at the exact same time. And that's exactly who Jesus was, the God-man. And know this, John experienced this God-man. Jesus manifest in the flesh. John heard him, John saw him, John felt him. He heard Jesus speak, he saw Jesus perform miracles. He saw the pierced hands and the risen body of Jesus Christ. John saw it all. But here's the wonderful thing. Look at verse number three. That which we have seen and heard, we kept to ourselves, and selfishly hoarded until we died. Okay, That's not what he says. He says, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. Here's what John is saying. This was too good to keep to ourselves. Because what we experienced firsthand we want to share with you so you can experience it. Well, what is that? The fellowship that's available with God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. So John is basically saying this. You received Jesus Christ after you heard him preached, that which you heard from the beginning, like he said in verse number one, that message that was preached, we delivered it to you for this reason. We wanted you to know the joy of fellowship with Jesus. We wanted you to experience all that was the gospel. The gospel was given to you that you might have fellowship with the Father and the Son. So what happens when you have fellowship with Jesus? Well, joy. Verse number four. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. He's basically saying this. Fellowship with Jesus equals joy. They just wholeheartedly go together. So we can kind of sum up with what John is saying here, what we're going to call the central idea of the text, or the main thing that John is trying to say in these four verses, which is this. Declare the gospel to the saints so that they may have joyful fellowship with Christ. What did John do? I want to share the gospel with you so you can have joy in Jesus. That, that is basically and summing up what John is saying here in these verses. When the truth of Jesus is fully experienced and fellowship realized, joy is full. And Jesus brings joy. <clears throat> so the false rhetoric, okay, false rhetoric of John's day looked like this. Christ didn't come in the flesh. Sin is okay just as long as your spirit is clean and you don't have to love your brother in Christ. You only have to love God. That was the false rhetoric that was very prolific. Now, listen, we don't, might not have Gnostics around today, but we got plenty of false bad beliefs, don't we? Wrong doctrine, wrong understanding. Let me just run over a few of these here real quick. Inclusivism. Now, this is kind of the same as syncretism in this, except for it's a little bit different. Everyone needs to feel accepted, and that means we have to rid ourselves of all truth and all doctrine. Doesn't that sound like our culture today? Don't speak the truth, you might step on somebody's toes. Now, it's... I won't say it's okay, because it's not okay if our culture goes that direction. But it's one thing if a secular culture goes in that direction. It's a sad day when a secular culture goes in that direction. 
But it's an absolute crying shame when the church of God moves in that direction. When there is a lack of responsibility from the pulpit to the pew to declare that which is truth in love, and instead we walk around on eggshells and we're very cautious and careful lest we offend anyone so we speak no truth. And churches, by and large in our culture, have become nothing less than social clubs where people get together so that they can enjoy doing some community service with one another with some similar belief systems, and yet there is no gospel truth, no confrontational preaching, no declaration about sin and righteousness and judgment to come. And yet we have a whole book that is laid before us that there is a responsibility of the man of God to preach the whole counsel of God and a responsibility of the people of God to receive the whole counsel of God that you may be thoroughly furnished and perfect unto every good work that God has given you. Now listen, these are important things that we have here in the scriptures. And although we might not have Gnosticism out there, inclusivism has become a big thing. Everybody, we want everyone to feel welcome here. Now listen, I hope everybody when they walk in the doors, the Bible Baptist Church feels welcome at our church. But just because they walk in doesn't mean we're going to absolutely alter everything that this church believes and the gospel truth that we stand on. Actually, we say this, we love them too much not to preach the truth. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be hateful and ugly and go around and hit people over the head with the Bible. Since I've been here, I've only done that to one person, and it's my son. And he deserved every time it happened. Amen? (laughs) Sorry, Nate. But I'll tell you, we need to be loving but willing to give the truth. What about this? Doubting the scriptures, doubting the Bible. No one can be absolute and dogmatic about what the Bible says. Instead, we need to be open-minded on all opinions, right, that are out there. I, I have never in my life seen so much question put on the Word of God as what's happening today. There is absolute, uh, even, even those that are uh, believers, self-professed believers, have gone into great lengths and depths to saying, I don't know if we can fully trust the Word of God. I'm so thankful we have these 66 books from Genesis to Revelation that I can dogmatically tell you this are absolutely true. This is God's word. It is true from cover to cover. From the beginning to the end, it is absolutely, you can take it to the bank, God's word as if he were here speaking directly to you and we ought not doubt the word of God. What about religious affiliations? Just good enough. I mean... You know, you just go to church, you give your money, you do some religious activity, and that's just sufficient. God has called us to holy living, sacrificial living, all-in living, gospel living. These last two here, maybe you have have or hadn't heard of them, humanism. Humanism is, is, our culture has become rife with this belief, which is this. The ultimate goal of your life is for you to be happy. The ultimate end of man is man. So, be all that you want to be and do whatever you want to do. Whatever makes you feel good, do it. That's just all that you need to do. Humanism, the ultimate end is man, leads to hedonism, which is that. If it feels good, do it. Right? If it feels good, just do it. It might be good. It must be good if it feels good. Uh, Our culture, again, is just rife with these false beliefs. Now, again... It's one thing if a world believes these things. It's another thing when these false beliefs start to creep into the church. Just like John was concerned, he's saying this. Listen, there is a whole 
a litmus, a whole list of all of these false beliefs and, and, and systems that are out there that are saying this, I'll give you joy. I'll give you happiness. I'll fulfill you. This is what you need to do in our day and age. This is the appropriate thing to do. And yet the scriptures make it very, very clear. Jesus brings joy, so be joyful in Christ. Now, again, I don't want to oversimplify this, but here's what, what John's ultimately saying in these first verses as he starts the book. He's simply saying this. I want you to have a no-so salvation because a believer that has believed the gospel and now has full assurance of their salvation and is resting in the relationship they have in Jesus Christ will experience peace that passes understanding, joy that cannot be compared with. And I'm telling you, there is no stopping a believer that has that type of testimony. You know, Satan loves to put a, a doubt in our heart because it makes us really say, if I don't even know if I'm saved, how can I lead someone else to Christ? If I don't even know if I'm saved, should I really be involved in this ministry? I'm an imposter. What if somebody figures it out? Now listen, you've never had any of those internal conversations before. Consider yourself lucky because a lot of believers do. They struggle with doubt. And it might come like a wave. There are times where you say, man, I'm, I'm good to go. And then other times where you're struggling. Am I saved? Am I not? What, and wondering, would a saved person do this? A lot of times that comes from wrong belief. Now, I'm not saying you're a heretic because maybe that, but what I'm saying is, is there's been wrong belief that's crept into the church that says this, work in order to be saved, do in order to be. And, and they're contrary to the scriptures. So here's what John, he just starts at the very beginning of the book and he says this, you remember that message that we gave you at the beginning that we had felt and heard and seen the word, life, Jesus, the gospel, and it was joy like we had never experienced. The relationship we have with him, it can't be explained. That we declared to you. Believe that. Why? Verse 4, so that you can experience joy in Jesus once again. Why? Because there's a lot of weird beliefs that are out there. And a lot of times where believers get sidetracked. So John comes back and just kind of go back to that same thing. Remember the day you got saved? The gospel, the simplicity of the gospel. Death, burial, resurrection. Jesus died for your sins. Simply here. Put your faith in Jesus. Did you do that? Then rest in the relationship with Jesus. Experience the joy of salvation. Don't make the blunder. Where's my phone at? <laughs> Don't make the blunder of looking for joy when Jesus just simply says this. Right here. Rest in my relationship. I'll give you joy. Let's all stand together as we come to a time of invitation here tonight.